0: Hi and welcome to the PhD Talk podcast. I am Eva, a civil engineering professor and blogger on the side.
1: And I'm Rico, a PhD student in civil engineering.
0: Join us on this podcast in which we discuss all topics related to PhD life, research mechanics, and lived experiences.
1: There will be interviews and discussions with guest researchers and PhD students. We hope you stick around with us on the PhD Talk podcast.
0: Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of the PG Talk Podcast. Today, we are going to talk about how we make our science more open. We've done two episodes in the past. Those were episodes 25 and 29, to which we will be linking in the show notes, which were interviews with people from the Delft University of Technology Library on open science, as well as open access publishing. So we wanted to reflect on what we learned from them and see how we make our science open, what we still have to learn, what we still have to implement, and some of the advances that we made in the meantime. So with that said, I suggest we break it down to some of the different topics that um, we learned about in the open science episode of the podcast. So let's start with open data. Rico, have you had a chance to either make your data open or benefit from other people who made their data open?
1: Yeah, thank you. Eva, very good question. Um for myself, I I have benefited a lot from open data. Specifically, a uh, an open uh a data set that was made public by the Pacific Engineering and Earthquake Research Center. It's called the Structural Performance Database. And what this database basically is is a collection of reinforced concrete tests, so tests on full structural members. And so my research is focused on on that aspect of structural engineering and so uh, I used a lot of their data to basically validate some of the models that I was using, and I really benefited from, from that. I'm on the website all the time, um, and this website probably is one of the precursors to like an open science movement. I'm not sure open science or open data was in the vernacular when this website was created. Yeah, so I really benefit from that, and that has in turn encouraged me to make the data that I'm using for my research open, so publishing it on perhaps more modern um, modern websites because the where this data is is collected is really a, a standalone website and I think now there's a lot more accessible and, and better resources for for researchers that want to make their data open so yeah so that's um, that's been my experience and I wonder on your end Eva have you had experience with open data sets and if so where what platform do you use
0: Yes I've tried in the past four years to make my data sets open as much as possible Mm -hmm. and I use the Zenodo platform so what I do is I collect data in a excel file and I upload it there Mm -hmm. and then it gets a doi so that makes it easy to cite it for example in a paper saying well the data set is available in the public domain with the reference and people can then find the DOI there or if it's uh, what we've seen more often in open access journals is that they explicitly ask where the data is stored and where it's accessible. And in some cases, it's a line like the data is available upon request from the authors. (laughs) Sometimes it's a little bit harder as people change universities and their email address is not valid anymore. Um, But you're encouraged then as well to say the data is available with the link.
1: And so when you upload, so your data that you put into an Excel file, I guess you have to be pretty diligent with your what's the word I want to use? Like with your readme files, with your, you know, showing exactly what this data is.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. What I use, and I'm not sure if that's a standard practice, but I use a tab in the Excel file that's like the version management or the explanation that then has some additional information in there. Or the paper itself, for example, when it's a database and there is an excerpt from the database in there, or it says this, these are the columns that are included in the database and what they refer to.
1: Sure. So it does take some extra effort on your end. It's not as easy as just plopping the Excel sheet that you've been using for the past mm-hmm. however long you've had the data. There really is some extra effort involved. Yes.
0: And I would say if it involves human subjects, such as, for example, the work we did on academic parents and the work that I did on the doctoral defense, there you have to, of course, make sure that the data set is anonymized. So you either remove all the parts that make the respondent identifiable which sometimes is the email address if, if you leave the option of people uh, receiving the outcomes of the survey or the, the study uh, mm-hmm. at the end of the research and things that some platforms also register as ip address and uh, coordinates some of them register as well so all of those things you want to remove
1: this varies a lot by the academic discipline like you were saying right i guess for myself i'm not sure when is a good time to think think about starting to publish the data? Is it right at collection or very soon after collection? Or do you tend to publish or post the data on Zenodo once your work on it is finished? Like In terms of a timeline, when do you think about that?
0: I tend to publish it when pretty much right before I would submit the paper or upload the preprint, mm-hmm. because sometimes I, especially, for example, if it's a, a database that is a collection of information from different different literature resources, so really a database of experimental work, then I want to go through it and give it as much as time as possible to make sure it doesn't have errors but of right. course if you compile a database it, it can always have some typing errors in there of uh, course you see that there is Groups dedicated in our fields to really having databases that have procedures of adding the data, another person vetting the data, and a third person vetting the data. If you make a database on your own, it's, uh, it hasn't gone through all of that yet.
1: Yeah, so that kind of falls in line with my thinking on it as well, is that you don't want to release your stuff too early and then before mm-hmm. you've had a chance to really dig into it and make sure there's no errors. So that's yeah. why I'm sort of at the stage where I think towards the end of the PhD, once I'm sitting down to write the dissertation, I've gone through the experimental stuff. I think that's a good mm-hmm. point to think about publishing your data.
0: Yeah, Because yeah. once you start to write about it, you also get a better idea of which part of the measurement, for example, is really relevant.
1: Yeah, I've, I've noticed that I've thrown away a lot of the data that we've collected, so mm-hmm. or thrown it away, I should say. Uh, filtered. Filtered <laughs> it. Yeah, there we go. So if we move from open data to more open access publishing, uh, I know you've done a little bit on that. So could you share, I think we've mentioned it in snippets here and there, but we talk a bit more about it all in one place?
0: Yeah, I think the first thing to mention here is that my attitudes towards open access have changed. Originally, when I heard about open access during my PhD, I thought the idea was weird to be paying somebody to publish. was mm-hmm. like, sure. At that point, I was maybe uh, uh, even <laughs> thinking they should be paying me <laughs> because yes. I did the work. Yeah. So yeah. my original <laughs> attitude towards that is that I I thought it was weird and i thought it I, I didn't really trust the rigor of it i thought if, if there's an economic incentive for these journals then is their peer review process actually real or is mm-hmm. it fake and sure. of course there are predatory journals then that it's their business model to live on the article processing charge yeah. whereas in other cases we see more and more than how do you call them long-standing or Mm old-fashioned or whatnot journals that are in the traditional publishing model are more and more giving authors as well the option to publish open access for a fee. And some of these fees are of course as well, exorbitant. If you look at uh, the open access publishing fee of nature, I think it's, don't take my word on it, but they think it's close to $10,000, $9,000 something. And I think in our field, something like engineering structures, if last time I checked was $5,000. So it does become difficult. Um, and I remember that when I was doing my PhD, my my friend who at the same time was doing a PhD in, in medical sociology, she, in the medical field, they were already much more using the open access model. And when she told me about that, I... I that's the first time I heard about it, and it, it took me a while to to wrap my head around like how does it work, pay for it. Yeah. So I would say my my attitudes have shifted since then, as uh, as it has become more common, as I have had experience publishing more access open access I should say so yeah. it, it has changed since then
1: well so that's it uh, but it's changed but the, the fees have still are still sticking around and mm-hmm. so I wonder do you I guess it's very difficult to want to publish everything open access and so you must have to like make choices or even an early stage researcher must have to make choices on you know what exactly do I want to publish open access right
0: yeah and I must add here that since TU Delft is so much geared towards giving more priority to open access publication, they actually have agreements with all the large open access publishers. If you publish through any of the large open access publishing houses like Frontiers or MDPI or all of the ones that are fully open access, you don't have to pay anything. You just click, it's the institutional program, and it immediately gets billed centrally to the library of your university that takes care of the open access part. Hmm. And the other thing that I've used on the, the publisher MDPI is that they give you vouchers when you review papers for them. So I've also in the past published by collecting review vouchers and then Getting a waiver for the uh, for the APC, okay. and in other cases, for example, sometimes when they have a collection of articles and they say your topic of is of particular interest, it may give you a fifty percent waiver or a hundred percent waiver. So there's there's always options with waivers as well. If, for example, you are in the global south and the the publishing fees is the double of what we would receive in funding for a typical project,
1: and then I guess the other side of open access publishing or the other aspect of it is uh preprints or publishing your preprints posting them online Mm -hmm. so before your article is peer-reviewed and and fully completed you can post these uh online uh i guess on similar servers to Zenodo, something similar to that and uh have them be accessed by whoever wants to access them and What I've read about this is that one of the big perceptions is that by doing this, you're allowing your work to be scooped. So not so much in in our field of structural engineering, but perhaps in another field, posting a preprint, you're scared that somebody's going to jump on your research. But in doing a bit of research on that, you know, for the podcast and trying to think about that, I think uh, that fear is really unfounded for the simple reason that by allowing your preprint to be accessed, you're sort of making a record that, hey, I was here first, you have a a date, a provenance of your research, where you say, as of this date, I was I was ready to publish. So it's sort of like a patent on your work in a way, or okay, it's a copyright on your work, uh, so that can't really be scooped on that. So it's actually a prevention for scooping, or it's a way to prevent scooping from happening. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something where, even as a PhD student, even with you know, published maybe during the course of the PhD, maybe two to four papers uh, in general in my field, I think that's something that we can really think about as PhD students even early on in, in a research career like that.
0: Yeah. And as one side common to that, there's several platforms that you can use for uploading preprints. I think a very commonly used one is Archive with the X in there. And then there is the separate ones for, for example, biology and chemistry, etc. cetera, that all use the like same architecture as archive. Mm -hmm. And I also use sometimes preprints.org, which is, it's of the publishing house MDPI. So if you submit an article to that publisher, you actually have the option with one click to as well upload it to their preprint server. Mm -hmm. And we see more and more that within the, all the journals that run on OTS, the Opal open journals system, which is like the open source platform that a lot of small journals use, that they're also adding the option for preprints now. So that seems to be coming very soon. And I think one additional part to mention about open access publishing is to also make the peer review process open. And we see that some journals give you the option to publish the peer review reports and your rebuttal um, Mm -hmm. together with, with the paper. It also gives the reviewers, if they want, the option to make their name public after the publication of the paper. So okay. they can choose if it's open peer review, if they want it with their name, hmm. or if they want to remain anonymous. Yes. And I haven't seen so far in my field many people that actually want to put their name on it. Yeah. But I do think it's a good measure to avoid some of the sometimes nasty comments that reviewers may be giving. Because mm-hmm. if you know at the end of the day, it's going to be somewhere on the internet with your name on it, maybe you'll think twice um, on how it will come across.
1: Yeah. I think there's maybe two two sides to that coin. Like it might prevent you from being overly critical of something. Uh as a reviewer, like I agree with you. Sometimes the comments are very hard hitting. But yeah, I'm not sure I'm not sure how I feel about that. I think overall it's probably a good thing.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I haven't had the case that any of the at least to my knowledge, that <laughs> any of the review reports that I wrote have been made public mm-hmm. with my name on it. Sure. Um I think my one worry there. Would be then. I actually use the same template for every review that I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I use the same layout. Okay. And then I discuss. I have like my general comments, and then a table with specific technical and editorial comments. And yeah. my general comments always follow the same structure. So I discuss the title, the abstract, the introduction, the literature review, the methods, mm-hmm. everything, which also yeah. helps me, I think, write a more balanced review. But it may make it much more recognizable, like for a, a journal that would not want to use it, Okay. saying, oh, this is the reviewer, because our field is also not very large.
1: Yes. Yeah. So once one's published, then everybody could uh, think probably people are, aren't. Oh, uh, speaking for myself, I, I think for the most part, researchers are pretty busy, so... I don't think, but I guess once you see it once, then you can recognize. Wait a second, I think I've seen this this template before, and then you mm-hmm. look it up, and oh my god, it's Ava.
0: <laughs> Next time I see her, I will tell
1: her. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there's there's concerns with with all of this, but um, mm-hmm. trying to balance this sort of thing, these concerns with actually trying to make things open.
0: I think one thing that I can add here as well about open access publishing is that the role of publishing houses, for example, Latin America, is different from, say... Europe and the United States, where publishing is very much dominated by the very big publishing houses like Elsevier, Taylor & Francis, and the Open Access ones, MDPI, Frontiers, Balkema, CRC Press, to name a few, uh, Springer Nature, and I think that I've had the, the largest uh, conglomerates. In South America, what we actually see is that there is a lot of small journals that are managed by in-house university publishers. So my university here, Universidad San Francisco de Quito, has an entity called USFQ Press. Mm -hmm. And USFQ Press publishes books, monographs, and journals. And we also see that a little bit now at TU Delft, as we discussed with uh, Frederic, who manages the the publishing of of TU Delft. But it's not that common in Europe and the United States. Even you see some, and now I will have to look up which one it is, but I, I think it was... Either Yale Press or one of those that did have a long-standing academic publishing trajectory for books closed recently because they can't compete anymore. But I would have to look up which one it is. I think it was of one of the Ivy League schools.
1: That couldn't compete with Uh uh, Springer, Nature, Mm -hmm. Taylor and Francis. Mm -hmm.
0: Whereas in, for example, Ecuador and other Latin American countries, every university pretty much has its publishing house. And we see a lot of, or virtually all of these publishing houses, they are funded by the university. They are part of the university. So they make it possible to publish open access without the article processing charge. So for example, ASI Avances en Ciencias e Ingenierías, the Journal of Science and Engineering of Universidad San Francisco de Quito, is an open access journal and it does not charge an article processing charge okay. because everything is run on um, partially, like the editorial part is run on USFQ Press, which is an entity of the university. Okay. And it's funded by university, and then all the editors are volunteers. So it's uh, yeah. it, it's people of university that volunteer their time, some people from outside university as well that help us with it. Um, so it, it gives an option to publish open access without that charge. Of course it's much harder to sort of compete against the big publishing houses in terms of indexation in terms of attracting papers etc
1: it's almost a like a monopoly where like even if a university wanted to start this you know in a different market let's say in Europe or in North America it would be tough to attract quality research mm-hmm. and that's too bad because you know the universities are kind of set up for this to be sort of in their niche of services they provide like
0: mm-hmm. and we see it reflected in everything that is indexation of journals so When it comes to the indexation that is called Latin Index, Mm -hmm. which is uh, of Latin America and the Iberic Peninsula, Mm -hmm. there we see that there's a lot of these small journals. To make the step to Scopus and Web of Science, that's a very big step because that requires a lot of administration. And for example, if you submit your journal to Scopus for review, I think it takes about two years for them to give an answer. So it's also very slow moving for for small journals. Other challenges for, for these small journals are, for example, requirements that come with the publishing on time. So one of the indexations really requires journals to publish as they have declared their periodicity. Okay. And if you are a big publishing house, of course, you have all, everything is rolling and you have an IT department and whatnot. And it doesn't happen that there is a delay in publishing. Yeah. The only delay I've ever heard recently was from one of journals in Taylor and Francis, that there was a bit of a delay in printing because of COVID. Okay. But that was really the physical part. Whereas for a very small journal like Avances, whenever there is something that goes wrong and we need help from IT, who are we not a priority or we're dealing with pandemic and still trying to find time to work on the journal. Yeah, like it accumulates and we have delays, and then that's an issue if you want to get towards these indexations.
1: Yeah, and as you said, like the editors are volunteer, and so then sometimes priorities mm-hmm. get mixed around, and and yeah, 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 it's easy to let this fall off. Whereas the big publishing houses have so much more inertia to moving forward.
0: Mm-hmm. And we do see in. Uh, That there's other indexing uh, services such as Amelica and Redalic, which are really geared towards open access and that are really being more recognized within Latin America as well. Mm -hmm. As in, if you reach Amelica or Redalic, that's like a temp of approval of your journal.
1: Okay. So we've talked a little bit about specific parts of the open science movement, so open data, open access publishing. Speaking about open science as a general, like I guess, umbrella term and and philosophy behind this, what, what sort of efforts have you made overall to make the whole research process more open?
0: I think one part there is the, the blogging, which is that I've done. It's originally, yeah. I started to just document things that I did in the lab and how I do things. And that gives you a, a kind of look into the kitchen that you can't add in a journal paper because there's not space there to do that. And if you write a journal paper, at the end of the day, what you show is the things that worked and it looks as, as everything was very much streamlined. And I do think there is a... A space and an important space in science to show what did not work and document what did not work and there is i think there is a one journal now that is the journal of trial and error that okay. is for documenting things that did not work but that's very new and other than that it, it looks as if everything works phenomenally from the first time and that's yeah. i think especially for for those of us who have done experimental work we know that Something always goes wrong, so yeah there's that part to it
1: we should call this open open failure mm-hmm. and I could speak for myself as like think of myself as like a, an apprentice researcher in, in that way so I think as a PhD student coming into the field it's really useful I know the blog and and other blogs like it being able to sort of look into the life of a researcher and and the things that go wrong and the procedures they use uh, is really helpful because it really helps when you encounter a problem you feel like you're part of something bigger like you know it's not just me that that's encountering this problem this has happened before and so it really allows you to look into the field and and feel more a part of it so i can really appreciate uh people like yourself that really blogged about this and, and made it uh, easily accessible. So I think there's a, an important role there.
0: And I think in the field of medicine, it's also important to document failures. That That's one of the fields that really has a strong so-called publication bias, that only the trials of pharmaceutics and whatnot that worked are published. And people tend to repeat experiments that did not work because yeah. there is no documentation of the fact that that particular compound did not uh, have xyz positive effect so there it's a it's it's a major issue in, in order field that i think it's a bit less because we do have a lot of when it comes to determining for example material properties it's all described in codes and standards so you can follow Certain protocols, but then in the medical field, life sciences, there it's it's even more important than for our field. I think.
1: And something we could talk about maybe another time that is related to this is uh, the or like the replication crisis that I think a lot of uh, a lot of sciences is, is mm-hmm. it's sort of coming to light now. <laughs> maybe that's worth it for another episode.
0: I think the other. Uh, thing to mention about the o- open science. We linked in the show notes of episode 25 to the open science MOOC, the Massive Open Online Course of TU Delft. There is also an open science MOOC that is fully on an open source platform and whatnot mm-hmm. it is that we link in this in the show notes of this episode. Sure. And I contributed a tiny, tiny drop, a tiny, tiny piece of video to that one Uh, Many years ago, um, really the role of open access publishers in in Latin America. So it's a a very large project. People from all over the world have contributed to that. Mm -hmm. Good representation from the global south as well in there. So if you're interested in open science, you may want to check out this, uh, this MOOC.
1: I think from the perspective of a PhD student, like how can we contribute to open science? I think my very small contribution is talking to new PhD students coming into the lab, talking to your peers and explaining to them, you know, making your data accessible to them, showing how you organize your, your, you know, your code or your Excel sheets Mm -hmm. or what have you, showing your failures, talking to, you know, the masters and PhD students and, and telling them, listen, this is what went wrong. These are kind of the problems. And. Just giving that reassurance that like the stuff you're going through is very normal, <laughs> there's a lot of yeah, failures that yeah. go along with this
0: that is so important, yeah,
1: you know that's sort of the very small network open open science on a very small scale, mm-hmm. but I think that's important,
0: and it's part of being a good colleague as well,
1: yeah exactly yeah we're we're attaching this big name this big word to it open science, but really it's just sharing things with your peers and then also for myself, thinking about now that I'm at the stage of trying to publish things and my data is pretty much organized how it's going to be organized thinking about as a researcher publishing things either preprints or publishing your data sets uh, those sort of things
0: and what's the policy at your university with regard to making science open is there a strong movement in your university or is it not so much of a concern or policy instrument
1: that's a really good question and i wish i had a better answer than uh, I, i'm not so sure
0: i would say if they haven't been spamming you with emails on the topic, then maybe it's not <laughs> as much a priority as yeah. as it's somewhere in an official document of policy. Because yeah. what I did notice is that once UDL started to make open access and open science much more important, and that was as well a part of some pan-European effort on um, making science more accessible and more open, then they did start to Send emails saying, you know, at this moment, this percentage of papers is open access. Last year, it was this much. Our goal for the coming year is this. Uh, Know that we have all these open science incentives. If you need information, this is a person to talk to. So they made it very clear, like there was no way not knowing, unless you would just have very strong filters against any mass communication, but uh, they did send a lot of communications about it.
1: Yeah, so no, I definitely haven't been spammed with open access um, (laughs) information from my university. (laughs) I know they do have an open access policy and uh, they also uh, provide help like how to comply with the funding agencies, the major funding agencies in Canada, how to comply with their requirements for open access. But again, I'm sort of at that stage now. So this is something I'm going to be looking up uh, Mm -hmm. soon and hopefully having a conversation with my supervisor about it.
0: What we see in Europe is that more and more, at least the European Union and some of the national science foundations, let me call them the Mm -hmm. national funding bodies, yeah. They tend to require now that everything be publicly available. Okay. And my recent experience with that is uh, my research is generally funded by the Ministry of Transportation. And we recently had an issue regarding intellectual property. Um, a PhD candidate who would be working part-time with us and part-time still at his position. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of back and forth between the two institutions on who gets the intellectual property if generated from this research. So the way we went about that is we told the funding agency about this and they actually made a change to the the acceptance letter of the project, saying that everything has to be publicly available, that is public knowledge. So that took away that back and forth with regard to the intellectual property.
1: I guess they didn't prescribe how you had to do that, right? So that mm-hmm. just implies that you, wherever you end up publishing this research, you have to pay that open access or that open science fee.
0: Yes, and the other the other thing that we are allowed to do is to use the so called postprints and okay. a postprint is essentially your last version of the article yeah. before it got typeset and put into the, the nice PDF with the layout of sure. the journal. That file of every article we publish, we send that file to, to the person in the library who takes care of uploading that file into a repository of, of Teodalft and that makes it then publicly available.
1: And so the TRI agencies, which are the three big funding agencies in Canada, they actually... Uh, have it as a requirement that any peer-reviewed journal publications be open and freely accessible within 12 months of publication. Mm-hmm. So that's a requirement from the the funding organizations, which I think are where most researchers get their funding in Canada, or at least a lot of it. So uh, yeah, so they made a push towards that. For anybody interested in this, um, I think most universities probably have a A page on this on their website or they there's somebody you can access perhaps a librarian or something to abide by your university policies on this
0: and help you navigate the open sphere as well maybe your supervisor may not be that familiar with it because it's uh, these are newer journals newer ways of doing things it it may help to talk to somebody in the library or an open science uh, steward to to really get an idea of of what is out there
1: yeah absolutely and this is again another place where having an informal conversation with a colleague is also a good a good place to to get introduced to this
0: and are there things besides of course you're in the still in the part of writing up and uh bringing things together but are there aspects of your work that you have not made open yet that you would like to uh, moving forward
1: um no i think I'm a, I'm a big believer in like anything that i've produced i think should be publicly available uh, it's it's an easy decision for me like i'm happy to make everything open access but i know i have some colleagues whose work could potentially make money <laughs> on an industrial level and so they're a bit more hesitant i think to to share every every detail about their work. But for myself, yeah, I'm, I'm willing to make everything open access.
0: I think another consideration here, uh, besides having patentable work, yes. is in our field, in some cases, if, and, and that's something that I've come across, if you identify a certain bridge as very vulnerable, yeah. that may be something that you mm. want to not make open or change the way that you discuss it uh, yeah. for various reasons. One could be press, then sure. you know, a, a journalist comes across and, and says, this bridge is going to collapse. And uh, yeah. uh, that may not be the case. It may be a different type of vulnerability, but it may be something that goes into the news saying, you shouldn't be driving over this and, and make a, a, a big problem out of it. Yeah. And the other part is, uh, if a bridge is ve- very vulnerable, there's as well the... Risk or the worry about potential terrorism threats. Then, yeah. of course, the I do think the terrorist in person probably would have to be a civil engineer to understand what really is the vulnerability of the bridge. But there is worry from from bridge owners that if you start to really put that kind of information publicly available, that then something like that can happen. If, if there's a terrorist threat of uh, bombing one particular bridge or taking out uh, one of the piers and, and causing a, a major collapse and and cut in the road system that it is a big blow to a country
1: absolutely yeah that's something to to consider uh definitely if you're dealing with anything that's i guess accessible to the public you know like my my specimens are we build them in the lab and we we analyze them in the lab and then they get dumped into a dumpster somewhere so uh, i don't really deal too much with um uh, bridge structures but i know you do and so i could imagine that there's pretty strong restrictions on that right
0: Anything that is really a report of saying these are the most vulnerable bridges or these are the ones that uh, need attention first, that's something that we try to be careful with. And in one case time ago, we did a case study of a bridge where the bridge was posted and with some of the work that we did, we found that, especially given the fact that the bridge was coming up for replacement anyway, that the posting could be removed, okay. which was a very politically charged topic okay. because of the uh, one large uh, supermarket being right on the other side of the bridge, which okay. did not have access anymore because of the, the posting. So at that time, we also had to be very careful not to mention the name of the bridge because of the politics involved with that.
1: Yeah. The work that I did for my master's as well was looking at a uh, strengthening technique using carbon fiber and it was applied to an actual bridge uh, in Montreal. And then uh, the work was funded by the the crown corporation that administers and owns that bridge. That was also something where we had to be careful to talk about that because this strengthening was, you know, cost millions of dollars. And so, it, yeah, there's always considerations regarding that. But I think for the most part, at least my work is probably a good candidate for open access.
0: And how about the software that you use? Are you using a lot of open source options?
1: Yeah, so just for myself, as you know, outside of my work as a researcher, I try to use open source software in general, like for my, I might have mentioned it, but for my figures, I use um, Inkscape, which is an open access software. Mm Yeah, just in general, I try and be as open as possible just because those things are, you know, they they tend to have big communities around them and, and, you know, I I don't want to pay for the uh, the software. (laughs) For the specific research work, it's a little bit harder because there's not always... uh, A a free alternative. Yeah. How about yourself, Eva? Do you use a lot of proprietary software or do you try and use things that are in the public domain?
0: I use more proprietary software than I would like to admit. Sure. I actually used to use OpenOffice much more than Mm -hmm. the regular Office package, but virtually nobody uses OpenOffice anymore. I think I wrote my master thesis at the University of Brussels in that. So that's uh, almost 15 years ago by now. So Since then, I think I've gravitated more towards the general office package and the yeah. standard software that's, that's installed and that everybody else uses. And I, I recognize I could do better there.
1: Yeah. So we talked about data, we talked about publishing. Um, how about things like uh, the, the code that you produce? Do you put that on a GitHub or is that really like for internal use only?
0: I don't think I've ever made my code open. Yeah. I remember that we used to kind of like... Copy paste code into like an annex of a thesis long ago, and sure. I've used like I've once typed into MATLAB somebody else's code to start working from it.
1: Sure,
0: I haven't made my code open, um, but I if somebody would ask me for it, I would have no issues sharing it. And I have shared, for example, I have I always write a MATLAB code to process data, and I know that in the past I've Shared that with students, saying, "Well, this is what I have. This is how I process the data. You can start working from there. This is what generates the plots, etc." But I haven't really put it on any platform. Mm. Partially, I think it's also because I'm I'm not a very elegant coder. <laughs> I, <Yeah. laughs> I, if for some reason a loop doesn't work properly, then. Maybe I'll just write redundant code and I know it's not good practice, but (laughs) it gets the job done and I roll with it. So there's a little bit of like shame on my side (laughs) that my code is not really like nice.
1: Oh no, for sure. I feel that. Um, My perspective on this is is like a lot of it is so specific to the project that like it's almost I want to say useless sharing my code I don't think is going to help you for example and Mm -hmm. and vice versa Mm -hmm. maybe I'll take out tidbits like oh Ava did it this way that's pretty interesting but at the end of the day it's like it's a tool it's like it's like asking in my eyes it's like asking you like what finger do you use on the calculator do you use your thumb or your index it's almost like (laughs) it doesn't doesn't matter how you get it done Mm -hmm.
0: and I do think it comes down to as well the part that we said before sharing it with your colleagues yeah. So within our research group, we, we share code and especially we work on project together. And then sometimes it, I see code of a colleague and it's very nice, but explain me what it does. So I, I do think having that conversation with somebody to this is what it does and, and, and show how it works is important. If you put it somewhere, then the person who is going to use it may be very lost with it.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think maybe like, I know uh, I have some friends doing computational fluid dynamics work and I think they use, I think it's open foam, open foam I wanna say. And so that's a really like common software in the field. And uh, I could imagine for a scenario like that, where you're writing software to interact with this already open source software, or even like OpenSeas, which is I know in earthquake engineering, if you're writing software to interface with OpenSeas, I could imagine there's a benefit for that software to get published with proper documentation, of course, but something that's just processing data that you generated in the lab, I think is less, less useful.
0: I think one thing to mention here as well within the MATLAB community is, and I hope I got the person's name right, but I think it's Elizabeth Jones who wrote a DIC code that many people have used to to build upon. So that's uh, that's one, I would say, commonly used one as well. So this has been episode 48 of the PG Talk podcast in which we talk about how we make our science more open. We discuss how we're dealing with open data, open access publishing, open science in general, the policies of our universities and how that may influence our choices towards uh, open access publishing, and some things that we have not made open yet. So with that, I would like to thank you all for listening to today's episode of this podcast, and we'll be back next week with more on PG Live and Research Mechanics. Thank you so much for listening.